Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're speaking with Francois Guinet. He's a professor of modern Jewish history at the Department of Hebrew and Jewish Studies at University College London. His book is Sources on Jewish Self Government in the Polish Lands from its Inception to the Present. Francois, thank you so much for sitting down with us. My pleasure. So first of all, can you just tell us how this project came about? Sure. The original idea was one of two young Polish colleagues, uh, Artur Markowski and Marcin Sobon, uh, who suggested uh, a study about Jewish self-government in Polish history. And uh, Professor Jerzy Tomaszewski and myself were approached whether we would be interested in joining this project. Uh, we applied for funds from the Gerda Henkel Stiftung, which is located in Germany, and uh, got the funding. And so uh, we uh, found 10 experts for different periods and regions, uh, the majority of whom are from Poland and the majority of whom are also junior historians. Uh, and um, so, so this is a very interesting example for a uh, transnational and junior and senior uh, research team, which has worked very well together for, for a long period of time, identifying the sources, working through the list of sources to include uh, how to translate, uh, how to edit, and how to bring all together. Can you describe how the emergence of Jewish self-government in Poland and Lithuania is the result of this mix of Jewish and non-Jewish legal and political traditions? Yes, uh, the uh, first before we before I go into that, I think I should mention that I'm the editor of the volume uh, alongside Professor Jerzy Tomaszewski, who unfortunately is no longer with us. The authors of the individual chapters in this volume are experts on specific regions and periods of Eastern European Jewish history. Uh, and um, they deal with these, these aspects of Jewish self-governance in, uh, in the Polish lands. The emergence of Jewish self-governance goes back to the slow migration of Central European Jewish communities to the East. 
And while it is often described as a flight of an escape from pogroms and persecutions, this is a very slow progress and initiated not in the least by very generous invitations or quite generous invitations from princes and monarchs in Eastern Central Europe. These invitations took the form of uh, charters or privileges, uh, which guaranteed Jewish communities certain um, certain incentives to settle down and establish these communities. One element of, of these privileges were quite generous uh, regulations on Jewish self-governance so that Jewish communities could elect their own board and independently from the landlord, that they could, and that is more important even, uh, adjudicate on the basis of Jewish law. So from the very beginning of Jewish settlement in Eastern Central Europe, uh, rabbinical adjudication formed part and parcel of the Jewish presence in Eastern Europe. And this is a core element of shaping not only Jewish self-governance, but also forms of autonomy. So that within a framework of a um, co more complex society with non-Jews of various shape, shapes and forms, so to speak, and Jews, Jews had the right to live on the basis of their own their own legal tradition and could uh, define their own leadership. And that is really the starting point of Jewish self-governance in Eastern Europe. So tell us then, what does this term Jewish autonomy mean? Well, I mean, autonomy, the word itself is from Greek uh, and means a self-law, one's own law. Uh, to, so to, to uh, govern a community or a commonwealth on the basis of one's own legal principles. Autonomy is more an ideal than a reality, because I just described the how, how privileges and charters were, the, the if you want, the outer shell, the outer framework of the settlement of these Jewish communities. While they were internally governed by Jewish law, externally non-Jewish non governance would still apply. So autonomy is an ideal. However, within Jewish communities, the, the rule of Jewish law, the halacha, was very far-reaching. So the very basis of the community, the bylaws of a community, the bylaws of voluntary associations, the uh, agreements between members of the community were all shaped by Jewish law and not by non-Jewish law. Also, uh, and that is a very important part of what was perceived as a far-reaching autonomy of Jews in Eastern and Eastern Central Europe, uh, there was, until the 19th century, very little non-Jewish adjudication of Jews. So in case of, for example, civil litigation between Jews and non-Jews, normally a Jewish judge would be involved. So in contrast to Central or Western Europe, Jews in Eastern Europe had a, a, a much stronger control of how they were being uh, governed and adjudicated. So that's a very important point. Another important point is that autonomy as an ideal uh, became also a sort of, of a fixation, the idea that, that the Jews in Eastern Europe were quasi-independent, um, and that, that needs to be toned down, so to speak. Uh, the Jews were obviously, and this is what the source reader shows, 
were a part of the fabric of uh, the Commonwealths. So first of all, of Poland, of the Polish crown, then of Lithuania, uh, but also of, of uh, other Commonwealths such as Hungary uh, and others. So, so there was a lot of embeddedness in this, in this, uh, Jewish, in this Jewish autonomy. Well, and that's kind of interesting. You mentioned those shells, so to speak, of governance. Um, And I know this is something that is a little earlier in history than your book, but it just got me thinking about the concept of Jewish autonomy. And it seems like that's something that stretches further back into, let's say, Roman times or something like that. Um, How sort of deeply entrenched in Jewish history and identity is this idea of Jewish autonomy? Well, as an ideal, uh, the, the idea the idea that that Jewish communities govern themselves on the basis of their own legal traditions is is a is a, is a very strong idea. However, there has always been since Talmudic times uh, a very clear understanding that as a diasporic community, uh, a, a Jewish community needs to accommodate the the non-Jewish framework. So one of the basic principles of running a community is to respect the law of the land. Uh, that's the legal principle of of dina de malchuta dina, uh, which has shaped the the place of Jewish communities across periods and and regions. And that's obviously also the case in Eastern, Central, and Eastern Europe. Um, uh, I would, I would, uh, I would emphasize the need to def- to uh, look at the degree of self-governance, not as a question of yes or no or black and white, but as a, a, a spectrum uh, in in which some communities had a, a far-reaching autonomy and other communities were much more regulated. And as a source reader. Shows because the source reader we are discussing today is actually spanning a thousand years. I mean, the first document is a a comment about a Jew who doesn't want to pay taxes and an, an internal Jewish source from from the year ten twenty five, so early eleventh century. And the last source documented is uh, legislation on the establishment of Jewish communities in Poland from two thousand and ten. So, so over these many hundreds of years, uh, the Jewish communities w- were existing under very, very diverse political uh, frameworks, contexts, and and also the degree of self-governance varied uh, uh, massively over time and place. So, actually, speaking of sources, what's challenging about both the Christian and Hebrew sources from the Middle Ages, and then what can you still glean from them? Well, that's—I mean, if you ask the editor of a volume which uh, which brings ten chapters with uh, forty to fifty pages of sources to the reader, uh, the first challenge was translation. Uh, the sources come from seven languages, uh, Hebrew, Yiddish, Russian, Polish, German, Middle High German. Um, what do I forget? I mean, a, a wide range of languages. So the first challenge from a point of view of putting out a volume like that is to find uh, able translators. Latin, obviously, I forgot Latin. Uh, so the medieval sources are very often Latin, Latin translated texts. So, so they, they the the challenge is here to 
to find a language in the English translation which is true to the original, but also al allows the reader to connect uh, sources from different places and different periods. Uh, so that's that's not a small tally. That was quite a challenge. Um, and uh, what we can glean from them, if we if you think about the Middle Ages, the chapter is by Professor Hanna Zaremska from Warsaw University. What is really interesting is that this chapter shows that the forms of Jewish self-governance, which I have described, so with far-reaching rabbinical adjudication and far-reaching uh, prerogatives for the for the individual community leadership, emerged slowly over time. We have the we have the privileges which spell out the right of Jews to in, to establish these these institutions. Uh, but this was obviously a matter of time to to get things running, if you want. The sources themselves often are, from our point of view, not very precise. If a if a Latin source uh, sp speaks of episcopus Judeorum of the Jewish bishop, uh, you you actually need a lot of expertise, as Professor Zaremska has, to understand what this episcopus or bishop actually is. Is this an elder? Is this a rabbi? Is this a rich Jew? We don't know. Uh, or I mean, I hope we found out and, and you find the right translation in the volume. Do you ever get the sense, though, that uh, it's difficult to understand where the truth is because of where the source is coming from, whether they're Christian or Hebrew? Um, you're obviously getting a skewed point of view from there as well. I think this is something that you mention in the book that that can be a challenge if if the sources are Christian or the sources are Hebrew. Well, uh, that's a that's an important point, obviously, for for anyone who is engaged in in uh, studying history. Uh, the these points of view are uh, diverse. One element of uh, enabling the reader to come to an understanding of of the uh, various perspective is the the very long period of time these sources cover. So, going through the centuries, so to speak, you get a feeling of what is important to Jewish communities, what they, they what they deal with in internal um, documents. Uh, so about regulations, how the community is run, um, but also how the community presents itself to the outside, um, how detailed information is. And th there we see a huge, a huge degree of variation over the centuries. In the beginning, non-Jewish administrator, I mean, like the landlord or the king or a provincial governor had very, very imprecise ideas of what a Jewish community is. In the course of the, let's say, 17th and 18th century, the understanding of how a Jewish community functions uh, grows very considerably among non-Jewish administrators or, or uh, people who had uh, responsibility. Um, and, and this is something which can be gleaned from, from these sources. Um, the, the degree of state interference grows dramatically in the course of the 18th and 19th century, and especially dramatically with the partitions of Poland. Poland-Lithuania, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, is, is partitioned uh, in three stages between 1772 and 1795. 
And the petitioning powers, Austria, Prussia, and Russia have developed their own ideas of what how to deal with a very large Jewish community in their respective uh, provinces. And uh, one, one shared element is the extreme curiosity of the petitioning powers. They wanted to know what the Jewish community was up to, what, how, how their income, income shaped up, what they did with their money, how many, much taxes they could uh, raise, and so on and so on and so forth. And the understanding about these matters grew dramatically. And this is very visible in the sources we document in the, in the reader. Uh, the reports by Jewish communities get, get ever more detailed and uh, more more uh, informative. On the from the other side, what we also see is that some elements of internal Jewish forms of governance remain very similar. So you have the emergence of factions. You have the emergence of of um, um, conflicting factions in the community, conflicts between uh, the community board and the rabbis, between um, poorer segments of the Jewish community and the and the what we can call the Jewish establishment, and these things actually stay the same over many many generations. And this is also something you can glean from these sources that uh, that certain characteristics of a local community will be similar, whether you look at the 16th or 17th century and the 18th or 19th century. So obviously you've talked very broadly about how these Jewish governments interacted with these ruling empires. I'm wondering if you can hone in on a specific example here. Uh, Can you tell us how did they interact with the Russian empire in the 19th century? Well, I mean, the 19th century, the, the, the Russian Empire has, uh, is, is very ambitious in, in integrating the Jewish communities into the fabric of, of, of the empire. And uh, what we can see is that, that this is actually leading to a, a very far-reaching integration of Jewish administrative, administrative structures into the state administration. This is m- more pronounced than, for example, in, in Polish territories. Um, this has to do with the, with the early, uh, very serious attempts of the Russian Empire to get a hold of Jewish communities. Um, that said, there is still a degree of of resilience in Jewish communities to control um, income streams, for example, around burial uh, or uh, kosher slaughtering, uh, but but less so than in, in, in those parts of Eastern Europe where the state is less intrusive, so to speak. So it is also, I mean, part of the story is also the degree of ambition of the state to control communities. That's Francois Guenet. His book is Sources on Jewish Self-Government in the Polish Lands from its Inception to the Present. Francois, thank you again. Thank you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.